at the market, vendors compete for my attention. They see that I have money to spare, and not to mention hunger, lots of it, that required affliction that drives the election of food. The fruit man lets his sales pitch loose. The brighter the berry, the sweeter its juice, and merry indeed a selection to choose. All different colors painted by factory crews. I buy some blues. The meat man watches me weighing a bird. He boasts, it roasts in the blink of an eye. So I've heard. Sawdust meat is all the rage in this, the age of speed and heat. That's not actually the end of the poem, but it's just how far I wrote. I just didn't want to finish it. Okay, fair enough. It sounds kind of like negative. (laughs) And also it's hard to combine in a poem the themes that I think we're going to be touching on today because they're kind of like, I feel like the conversation over the series of degrowth has gone in different branches. So on the one hand, we're talking today about food sovereignty. Yes. On the other hand, we're talking about virtuous politicians. Yes, and in between, we're talking about currency. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's going to be a little all over the place. Perhaps next week's questions will be a bit more coherent. Probably not. No, I feel like that's just going to be the trend. Yeah. You can get more and more random. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's kind of good. We get to wear different hats during the episode. Yeah, it's fun. Show our, uh, show our relative incompetence in different areas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to start off by talking about food sovereignty, something that I'm pretty interested in and have only learned minimally about in school. However, the last week or so, I've been looking into it a bit more and look forward to learning about it more in the future. So what did you know about food sovereignty before preparing for this week's episode? I knew what you had told me. Okay. <laughs> that it was about, correct me if I'm wrong, but my definition of food sovereignty is the ability of the producers, growers, and even consumers of food to have more control over it rather than big corporations. That's the essence of it, yes. Okay. It was... A branch off of food security, which came first. Food security is honestly what I often think of when I hear the word food sovereignty. And food security is the access to food, which is culturally relevant, relevant for your diet and lifestyle. And accessibility doesn't mean like, oh, well, it's in stock at the market. It means you have money. It means there's not threats when you're trying to get to the market. It means you have the ability to prepare it in a kitchen it's like you could even have the money and access to food, but then if you don't have a proper kitchen or sanitation and running water, you can't prepare it. Mm. Something so, I would also say is, I don't know if this is actually a part of food security, but I think it should be a part of the discussion in terms of access. The knowledge of how to cook and what to eat. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit more in the food sovereignty realm. They're pretty inseparable, but... There's six pillars of food sovereignty. Oh, okay. And one of them is building knowledge and skills surrounding preparation, but also growing and knowing what we should be eating. Because right now, we're pretty much the opposite of food sovereign, like the average person. Hmm. Of course, we can, for the most part, we all can access food in North America, which is quite fortunate. But a lot of people don't have clean water, and almost no one has knowledge of food preparation and access to local food. Like it's pretty inaccessible for most people. That's true. The other pillars of food sovereignty, which I found sum it up quite nicely. The first one is that the food is for the people and like food as a right, not a commodity. Because right now we see food pretty much as a commodity. 
it's honestly a privilege to be able to eat well. Right. For like the average person, I find. Mm-hmm. What do you mean eat well? Eat healthy foods? Eat healthy, yeah, and like sufficiently. Mm. Because even growing up middle class, I remember being like, it's not like we were ever hungry, but it was like a lot of people ate a lot of processed foods. Yes. Which is... Because they're cheaper. They're cheaper, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're better if you have three kids or more to feed. It's like much easier to prepare those foods given the amount of time in the day that we have to prepare food. Because right now it's not like we have much time allocated to that because we have to work, we have to go to bring our kids to school, you have to go to a meeting in the evening. Like there's, You have so many other commitments other than food preparations, so like quick food is easy. The second pillar is that it values food providers. Under our current food system, I feel like we don't value the providers at all for the most part. Like we don't know how little and <laughs> in such poor conditions that people are producing the food that we eat. Yeah. And I don't mean just the processed stuff. I mean, even the the grown stuff, like the stuff that we import, like lettuce or bananas, like the workers aren't working in like super cheeky conditions. Like it's pretty brutal and they're paid almost nothing for what they provide. And that's kind of where the fair trade movement originated was in food and like making sure that farmers were being paid well. Definitely look into that if you're interested in learning a bit about food sovereignty how we can treat people better (laughs) who are producing the food. And part of that is like localizing production. Because right now it's like if the economy shut down, we wouldn't have food for the most part. Like there's a few local farmers and community gardens that probably wouldn't be enough. Yeah, that's the crux of food sovereignty, right? Yeah. All the local stuff is exported anyway, Mm -hmm. which doesn't make much sense from an efficiency standpoint. Uh, The other one is power to locals. So it's like, even if we localized food systems, it means like shutting down the globalization of it a little bit. Okay. Because it's like even if all of a sudden there were a lot of local farmers, their prices would still be higher than the multinational corporations who are distributing and producing food. So it's like having things in place to secure their livelihoods, to encourage people to shop locally. Um, as I already said, building knowledge and skills. And the final one is that it's sustainable. Like it works with nature. Hmm. Right now we're kind of working against nature or like above nature. There's GMOs, there's monocrops, there's clear cutting of forests to produce food. That's like anti-nature, which is weird when you're producing food. Like the green revolution you're talking about? Yeah. Artificial pesticides, Mm -hmm. fertilizers, all these things produce a much higher yield but are bad for the planet. Yeah. Okay. So those are the six pillars. Those are the six. Do you Are you a big food sovereignty proponent? Do you think this is a really important topic? I think it is. I think I mentioned it on last week when I came up with the question of what is food sovereignty, that like if we wanted to create a rebellion, we like basically couldn't because we wouldn't have food or at least the knowledge of how to produce our own food. Mm-hmm. Do you think any food should be centralized? Do you think there should be any food uh, branded and sold in around the world? Because I think there should still be some. I think trade's important. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. But I don't think brands are important. I I was like nervous about this going into the episode talking about globalization versus localization because I know certain things will need to be global. Like it just makes doesn't make sense to try and grow wheat in a super dry place. Like it makes more sense to grow certain crops in certain places. And I think it's important for sustainability to not just try and force bananas to grow on every continent, like just grow them in certain areas and then trade them. But 
I think there would have to be regulations on that to make sure that people, the banana producers, don't get super rich. And, yeah, just, like, security for the people producing the food. Because right now it's, like, that's where why things are so inexpensive because we cut the prices at, like, the people level. I feel like we've gone a little bit ahead of ourselves because people listening might not have caught any of the other episodes where we kind of uh, explain degrowth and especially our views on it. So we're talking a lot about localization of food and the gradual reduction of our reliance on corporate production, Mm -hmm. essentially. Why do we think it's so important that food be more local, food be more decentralized? It's more sustainable socially and environmentally because when we're producing food in a way which you never see the farmers, you never see the farms Mm. or the animals being killed or the plants being cut down, you're more likely to waste food. Because it's all happening on another coast or on another continent. Mm -hmm. I remember I I sent you a stat the other month that was something like 60% of American children don't realize that bacon is meat or bacon is pig or something like that. Yeah. Or that pork is from a pig. Mm-hmm. Or no, it was that beef is from a cow. Yeah. We're like, yeah, that's the problem. Yes. <laughs> that disconnect is the problem. Mm-hmm. And people might say that's a failure of the education system, mm-hmm. but I disagree with that. I don't really think that kids should have to be taught in a classroom from a teacher, this is what pork is. Yeah, it should just come as being a citizen of a community. Yeah, it's a failure of the economic system, not Mm -hmm. the education system is what I'm saying. Yeah. There was a bill passed in Maine a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you heard of it called the Right to Food Bill. I heard of it. It's the first of its kind in America. And it's an amendment to Maine's state constitution that says, I'll, I'll quote, all individuals have a right to grow, raise, harvest, produce, and consume the food of their own choosing for their own nourishment, sustenance, bodily health, and well-being. Mm-hmm. So that sounds all good things. Yes. It just sounds, okay. Mm-hmm. From what I was reading, it is kind of like one of those feel-good bills which doesn't actually mean much. It doesn't sound like it would do anything to ensure that it's... It doesn't, it doesn't really do much. Yeah. The criticisms of it were saying that it leads itself open to unintended consequences with regards to animal rights, Mm-hmm. The safety of the food being produced, etc. Yeah. The regulations, things like this, soil testing, water mm-hmm. quality. And I agree, but it's that democratic wording of it that obviously got a lot of people excited. Yeah. So I have a quote by the main state representative, he's a Republican, mm-hmm. who said it's the Second Amendment of food. Second Amendment of food. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or like the Second Amendment of food. It definitely means people have an eye towards escaping a dependence on Mm -hmm. corporate production as I mentioned earlier which is a good thing but as I said I don't think it that should trump everything else I'm not like a I don't really have much of a libertarian point of view and I don't think that degrowth does either Mm -hmm. and there's a good quote that I think sums up my opinion on it pretty clearly it says the might of the it's kind of dramatic the might of the republic demands that we sacrifice some freedoms for an ordered society Mm -hmm. so basically you can't be raising chickens in your small urban yard, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Food sovereignty, in my eyes, is like a community effort. Mm. It's like we can't have chickens in our apartment. We can't have sufficient space to grow any food in here except for some herbs or some lettuce or whatever. But it would mean, okay, the building gets together, 
we have a huge garden on the roof or next door in the plot of land, there's a garden. It, it's cooperation. It's the opposite of what we do now, which is completely isolated from one another. Mm, yeah. I find it's important when discussing degrowth to talk about food sovereignty because you often think of communism, which was you line up and you get like allocated food, which is what communism kind of always ends up being of like people just having a set amount of food, set type of food and so on. But that's not what food sovereignty is about. It's not saying here's 2000 calories for every citizen. It's Mm. you don't eat pork. You don't eat gluten. Oh, you really like sweet potatoes. Like you can, you can eat what you want when you want in whatever quantity. That kind of, um, I don't want to be nitpicky, but it might confuse some people. That perspective that you were just saying when you talked, like, oh, you don't eat pork, you don't eat gluten, here, you can do this, 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 this. Mm-hmm. The whole point of food sovereignty is that no one's actually saying that. Exactly. Like, there, yeah. there is nothing mandated. Mm-hmm. It's much more democratic and grassroots is what you're saying. Yes. So in a way, it's escaping further from that idea of we're all lining up, because we might not be doing it, getting it from the government, but we're all lining up in our supermarkets mm-hmm. and getting our weekly batch of potatoes, ham, oh, this is what's on sale, that's what we're going to buy, and everyone mm-hmm. flocks to those areas and things like that. Yeah. I, mean, I you see it with COVID, like supply chains have been hit like wild. Yeah, there hasn't been eggs for like two weeks in our grocery store. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, cool, we won't eat eggs this week. Like, You don't have any choice over it. You can't be like, oh, I'm going to go to the farmer down the street, mainly because we live in a city and there aren't any farmers down the street. The gist of it is that if a supply line breaks like it breaks and we have very little to do with that okay i mean the the only question that we had was what is food sovereignty yes so i feel like we answered that well i think we illustrated it pretty well i think your examples were quite good can we shape it into maybe a more productive conversation at least for next week Mm. can we form a question that's a little bit more imaginative perhaps like what would a food secure neighborhood look like food sovereign neighborhood both yeah Okay. Well, yeah, we, I'll draw it. You'll draw it and show everyone on yeah, the podcast? Yeah, I will, Okay. I will. Sounds good. Speaking of showing everyone on the podcast, <laughs> this is our segment called Organism of the Week. Woohoo! I'm taking it back after you mentioned that green bean tree last week. It was a drumstick tree. Excuse me. It looked much more like a green bean. Oh my goodness. How many green beans have you seen? They're curved. So this week we're talking about the Eastern Imperial Eagle. Obviously. And I thought this would be a really good tie into our question about politicians. So here's a picture. I'll let you describe it. Oh, I like these guys. They're kind of what you envision when you envision a hawk. Or an eagle. Or an eagle. Yeah. But it's like the it's the prototypical one that's all brown. Hmm. Like a kind of mixture of shades of brown. It's not like a black and white and like yellow eagle. Yeah. It's a nice hawk. It's pretty much the basic eagle. Yeah. It doesn't really have many outstanding features. And you can swipe to see the other picture that I want to show. A cartoon? Yeah. So very big wingspan, yeah. a lot of leaves, Yeah, um, feathers, some may call them. It's the, uh, it's the Roman standard mm. because the eagle was on it. Okay. That was like their symbol for their republic. Mm-hmm. And most people today believe that they were talking about the Eastern Imperial Eagle. Mm-hmm. So the organism of the week this week is a little bit real life and also a little bit cultural. Mm-hmm. So this bird called the Aquila heliaca or the Eastern Imperial Eagle was the species under which the Roman legions marched. It was a symbol of their republic, and it symbolized courage, strength, immortality, and it was a messenger of the highest gods. Mm. 
especially important that I didn't show you was an image of the eagle devouring a snake. Yes. They sculpted that and drew that, and it was in the mythology a lot. It was a very popular motif in Rome and also in other ancient and medieval cultures. I remember yeah. when I was learning about the history of Mexico. Mm -hmm. It's the bird and the snake, and also in Jordan and other Middle Eastern cultures, it's the bird and the snake. And this really st struck with me because when we're talking about our next question is about how can we incentivize politicians to be more virtuous today or more mm -hmm. noble or more selfless? Why are they all so bad? Slithery. Slithery today. Yeah. I had the idea that it's funny because today most of us, even if it, we weren't given this choice between a bird and a snake, if you would just said, compare our government to an animal, like a lot of people would say snake. Yeah. But again, this is like a really, this is a messenger of the gods. People would almost certainly say snakes. Mm -hmm. Which is not good. I don't like that. Um, but just some more facts about the eagle. It is a vulnerable population. Okay. Because of hunting, mm -hmm. poison, rifles, habitat reduction, all those things that usually affect birds. It eats small mammals, small birds, and reptiles. Okay. I didn't know that birds ate other birds. I did know that. That just seems crazy to me. It's a bit wild. And you mentioned his wingspan. It has a really big wingspan of five foot nine inches to seven foot three inches. Whoa. Very big. Have you ever seen many eagles out in the wild? I've never seen one. Really? Mm. In like northern Nova Scotia, there were a lot of eagles and they're crazy to see. They're huge because mm. there's not a lot of big animals you just see hanging out. Like you see deers sometimes. That's true. But eagles are... They're crazy up in the sky. <laughs> we once I'm, had a discussion about what would be our mascot for this podcast. Yeah. I mean, you still like the snake, but I like an eagle. I think that's a good idea. Okay. So fierce. They're pretty fierce. Okay. So the next question, <laughs> which is how can we incentivize politicians to be good people? Or rather, mm -hmm. how can we, or maybe how can we incentivize good people to become politicians? Yeah. I thought it would be good to start by defining what exactly is wrong with politicians? Because a lot of people say, oh, they're bad or they're evil or they're bad people. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's good if we had some really specific adjectives. And, okay. and also the other side of that, what do we want them to be? Because it's easy mm -hmm. to say good, but like some really specific adjectives. One thing that I always like about those political tests online where you list all your opinions on different issues and then it assigns you, oh, you should vote green or you should vote conservative, is at the end of those quizzes, it always asks, what, what are you looking for in a leader, basically? It sounds like mm -hmm. a dating profile. Um, and it has like just a list of really good adjectives, and you only get to pick three. Mm -hmm. So I tried doing that for today. But first I want to hear, yeah, what do you think is wrong with politicians? Yeah, that's where I started as well. Basically, I don't think there's anything wrong with the people themselves. There is. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I Googled, I was like, why does politics attract bad people? But it's more like it attracts great people, but it also attracts these people that are kind of cocky, overconfident. And what I read was confidence attracts confidence. So like these people who are overconfident are often a little bit less self-critical, which usually means they're slightly less educated, perhaps. They're like overcompensating for something. Okay. But they're the more confident appearing. And then when they're appearing really confident, the voters say, well, I have confidence in them. They have a bigger personality. They're a bit more sure of themselves and then we'll vote for them. There's also the fact that if you saw a politician on the stage and they seemed like they had everything together, they had super, super specific plans and how they were going to execute their vision, 
you'd be a little bit intimidated, I imagine, because it's kind of scary to be like, this person's about to overhaul the government. I don't know if I want to elect them. Even if it was positive, it'd be a little bit nerve-wracking as a voter. Okay. So I feel like that's kind of what's wrong, is that we are afraid of, like, change, perhaps, or afraid of Hmm. big ideas or, like, really competent people. That's an interesting observation, that final one. Mm Mm-hmm. It brings me to an example I wrote. Okay, so the three that I thought were wrong with people, politicians, was a lack of transparency. They lie a lot. Mm-hmm. This is probably the biggest one, like dishonesty. Yeah. And I think most people on the street would say that. I yeah. wish politics, politicians were honest. Um, for better or worse, that's why most people like who like Trump like him. Mm-hmm. Because they, not casting any judgments, but they saw him as someone who was outside the typical corrupt system who would say it how it was. They also have a lack of vision generally. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of what you mentioned. They present a lack of vision. Mm-hmm. I just think they don't have much of a vision. And also, they're not very smart, I think. Like, there's not a lot of forward thinking that tends to go into politics weirdly. I think they have to present as dumb in order to get elected. Well, I don't know any of them behind closed doors. I can only judge on what I see. It's so true. If, what's that quote? It's like, if it walks like a duck and acts like a duck... And it's a duck. Yeah, I'm just going to say it's a duck. I'm not going to give it the benefit of the doubt and say it's like it's a goose pretending to be a duck. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, the things I would want politicians to be characterized by are honesty, Mm -hmm. vision, and intelligence, like the opposite of those three things. Yeah. And when it comes to vision, the example I had was during a couple of years ago, the Biden versus Bernie Sanders democratic debates Mm -hmm. when it was just those two on stage yeah when everyone else had dropped off and this was at like the height of covid Mm -hmm. and they kept asking about healthcare. what are you gonna do about covid what are you gonna do about healthcare? what are you gonna do about the cases and biden was very immediate and military and relatable and uh seemingly common sense saying well we're gonna bring in the army and we're gonna get this here and we're gonna get the supplies here and all this it was very straightforward and understandable essentially and Bernie was kind of hanging his hat on his typical Medicare for all healthcare reform, which mm-hmm. is a much longer term idea mm-hmm. and a much more revolutionary idea. And you could sense even in the debate room, even the people asking the questions and especially Biden responding to him was saying, that's all well and good, but what about for now? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I understand that's a pandemic, so there, there, there was an immediacy to it. Yeah. But that's something that I think you see as a trend across politics, even when, even in times of relative I think so, yeah. Uh, calm. Yeah, well, there's the one thing of you only have four years or so, and the other thing of, yeah, people just think in the short term because it's hard to think about your f- grandchildren or your neighbors when it's like, well, I need food to eat today or I need a house or health care. Yeah, so today. I think that that is antithetical to the idea of big change. Mm-hmm. Like the, that cry of we want change now, that doesn't work with we want big change yeah. because big change doesn't happen immediately mm-hmm. um, and it is more ambitious. You mentioned the four-year cycle as well. That's, I know it varies by country, but that's certainly an issue mm-hmm. with big political sweeping ideas. You can present it, capture everyone's attention, be voted in, even maybe get something started, mm-hmm. but then in four years there's like a coin toss that it will just be all undone. I'm kind of cynical about that. But what I would say is that governments don't really get to that stage anymore. They don't make the big promises Mm -hmm. because they know, well, they know it won't pan out in the long run. Yeah. 
And also, they, I think they know that a lot of citizens know that it won't really pan out in the long run. And mm -hmm. so they'll just go for the candidate who's offering the more immediate solution. Yes, exactly. I know there was a lot of climate progress in the 70s and 80s, but then there were certain presidents and prime ministers voted in who literally, like, in a matter of days, just undid it all. They were like, solar panels, ew. Yeah. Like, recycling, no thanks. Mm. Oil subsidies, yes, please. Like, it was just done overnight. So, like, I feel like there's a lot of people alive right now who saw that happen, so are just completely pessimistic about any climate action or adjacent yeah. and progress. Democracy is effectively supposed to safeguard against that. Yeah. Supposed to mean, oh, you choose a gentle direction, you'll keep going in that gentle direction. Mm -hmm. Or should I say, things won't be able to be undone very quickly. Mm -hmm. But that does happen. It's a, it's a kind of tyranny of the masses. It's a kind of authoritarianism that comes from the populace, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. And yeah. specifically that comes from misinformation a lot of the times. I think the only really the only real hedge against this is to decentralize the power so that it's mm -hmm. individual cities, so that like you said, with the climate change action or anything, if that starts to be the flavor, mm -hmm. you know, because culture is still largely shared among mm -hmm. an, amongst the nation, let's say. Yeah. Even if decision making is more municipal or more provincial or more statewide, the decentralization of power like that means that one election won't sway mm -hmm. the next few decades. I had that as one of my solutions was making, giving municipalities or even provinces or states more power because you're more likely to know the person in power, to be involved if you can see the specific changes. I went to a few city council meetings in my life and I remember I'd usually go with like a group of young people and then people's minds being blown like, oh, the municipal government has power over like painting sidewalks and like things that like impact you every day putting in traffic lights and it was like we always thought these are kind of silly things but it's like we always thought they had zero say over our lives yeah so because that's the disproportionate media coverage that it gets really yeah moving on to dishonesty or i'll just call it selfishness because i don't think there's much of a difference i think the dishonesty in from politicians basically usually always comes from selfish motives mm-hmm and I thought, why would, what would cause someone to be selfish about being a politician? Mm -hmm. Seems like it should be a relatively unglamorous job. Mm -hmm. I think one of the big problems is that it isn't an unglamorous job. Exactly. The, that kind of power, that elected power gives you money. Celebrity, basically. And celebrity. And it, yeah. it shouldn't give you fame. That, that doesn't would, make any yeah. sense. I 100% agree. We watched um, Biden's inauguration in January. Yeah. We were like, wait, why are there so many features on his family? Yeah. I don't care about his family. Mm -hmm. Why would I care about his family? Why do we care about anyone's family? That's a question for another day. Well, Stephen Fry, you know, the actor and commentary guy, mm -hmm. he has this idea about monarchy that I heard, which is that countries that have monarchies tend to be happier and more stable in their democracies mm -hmm. because there's something purely symbolic above the elected official. Mm -hmm. So he brought up the example of how in America... They treat their presidents like a royal family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's not good to treat the people making the decisions like the royal family. Mm -hmm. The good thing about monarchies is that they usually don't actually make the decisions. Yeah. It's just a symbol. So mm -hmm. I think even if you don't want a king and queen and things like that, I don't think there's much wrong with that. But even if you don't want that, there has to be something above 
mm-hmm. the elected officials. Yeah. And with the decentralization, of course, would hopefully reduce their wages. Mm-hmm. It's true. Because it doesn't make sense. I mean, if you're a politician, you should be essentially a servant. Leadership mm-hmm. should be service. Yeah. And also remove corporate lobbying because well, yeah. most politicians just paid off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit about them being celebrities. I thought, one, we just need more parties. Right now it's like, I was trying to remember the word fanaticalized. Is that the right word? It's basically made a spectacle. Okay, yeah. So it's like, as a voter, you're going in and you feel like you're voting for Team Iron Man or Team Captain America. It's not like you have... <laughs> you remember... <laughs> that was a movie, right? Like, you don't feel like you have a solution. And it's like, if you're going into politics, like, you have to either be an Iron Man or a Captain America. Like, you have to be one or the other. Mm. And it's like, so it's going to attract more extreme personalities. That's and I true. think politics always will. Like, it always... Ex- attract people who are outgoing have really strong opinions but there should be a variety of opinions it should attract people who are really into the environment education healthcare, really into urban planning like it should there should be options but right now it's either like one or the other and also with that variety different types of skill sets yeah i feel like every politician i mean for instance they all wear suits Mm mm-hmm and they all come from largely the same background. They all get the same types of degrees and the same mm-hmm. types of experience. It's either law or economics, or yeah. maybe military. But it's, it's very rarely a painter. Yeah, a lot of the big like changes that have happened around the world for good have come when people are elected who are painters, engineers, what have you. Well, do you, do you like the idea of a, of a career politician? Of no. Someone? I don't think it's a good idea either. People, a lot of people use it as a stick to bash Trump with mm-hmm. and I was kind of on that vibe at the same time because if you are evidently incompetent mm-hmm. then of course you need to become competent yes but that doesn't require you to spend 30 years in politics no in I fact, think you should have a law degree or like I, I don't something think you, like that you don't need to have a law degree you just need to know basic geography tenets yeah. of economics tenets of education mm-hmm. tenets of environmentalism all these different areas of military of law of police Mm -hmm. and you need to demonstrate that you are a willing learner Mm -hmm. i would say creative and humble enough to surround yourself with people who know more about each thing than you do i think that makes sense Mm -hmm. but you should be able to have a conversation with all of them about everything but i don't think that has much of a correlation if any about spending time in politics because that Mm -hmm. world is more about negotiation than anything else yeah no i agree that might be a good point to bring up next week of like examples of yeah, examples. alternatives because yeah. I didn't come up with any for this week because I guess I was I was pretty focused on trying to figure out what a good politician would be. <laughs> yeah, well, when when Kanye announced he was running, there's a lot to criticize about that. But one thing I don't think is a criticism is, oh well, you're a musician. Mm-hmm. I just I don't think that really matters mm-hmm. at all. Or um, or Arnold when he yeah. was the governor. Exactly. The unintelligence criticism of a lot of politicians today, that sounds really like judgmental. Yeah. But what I mean is when misinformation and a generally uninformed populace mm-hmm. votes in a demagogue yeah, who is very obviously lying to people mm-hmm. or making promises that are impossible, things like that. And this is one I actually did have a solution for, which is better education systems, critical reading, I mean, that should be basic. 
Journalistic integrity is another big one. Mm -hmm. Well-rounded, not career politicians. And going back to the Roman times, they used to teach kids about rhetoric mm -hmm. in class, about fallacies in speech, mm -hmm. about when someone's lying to you, about how to speak, yep. how to read properly, persuasive arguments. And this is a, a skill that is really um, fallen away, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's something we need to actively return to. Mm -hmm. You stole my last point as well, which oh, was sorry. a more informed populace will encourage better politicians. Of course, it would force them. Because it's like, one, the people will just be... More discerning. Yes. But also like, oh, I know what politics are. I know what they do. Right now, we don't really know what they do. Mm. Like, we know what they do. No, that's a really good point. We don't. But we don't. <laughs> <laughs> and we basically both had partial parts of our degrees were about that. Like we both took politics courses, and it's still like, but what do they do? <laughs> so, like, let alone a kid who's saying, I want to be a president when I grow up. Yeah. They don't know what the, the president does. They just know that they're a celebrity. Exactly. And, and their power. I had that point, which is, there's that common refrain, refrain, oh, it's a good thing anyone can be president. Yeah. Of course, that's a good thing in that, in that there's no exclusions, but the way people say it, the energy behind it, I always feel is less, oh, you can make a lot of change and be do good in the world, and more like, you can sit on that throne if you really work yeah, hard. <laughs> like exactly. It, it's a very selfish or self-centered uh, refrain, I think. Yes, I agree. I feel like that was a productive conversation. I was worried about it, but it, it's going good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Glad to hear your little status reports as we record. Sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to. I'm just thinking out loud. That's fine. That's what this is. Maybe we should rename the podcast. <laughs> thinking out loud. Yeah, we could be sponsored by Ed. Ed Sheeran. <laughs> Final question. What is money in the degrowth world? What is economics? What is currency? Mm -hmm. I'm going to mostly give you the reins to this one. Okay. I'm excited to talk about it because I read a statement this week that made me just take a step back and think, what is life? You know? Economy is an invention. Like money was just invented. And I know everyone knows that. Everyone knows money isn't real. Mm. But it's like, just take a minute. Like it was literally, it's just, we all agreed that this, we don't even have bills and coins anymore. Like we just agree, this is a thing. But it seems like we take it for granted. Yeah, that's, that's a good point that you said, well, everyone knows this, money isn't real. Yeah. Like you'll hear, like especially people our age, say it to be radical. Yeah. But that's as far as the thinking goes. Yeah. Uh, money's an invented system, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a cool observation. It is. Yeah. But go, go one step further and try and think what else, you know, try and Solutions. brainstorm, like have some fun with it. And that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I love thinking of money alternatives because I hate money. I don't even look at my bank account. I know that there's about this much money in there and I'm like, I have enough. Yeah, off topic, but I think you're mostly just scared. I am scared, <laughs> but it stresses me out. I remember one one study. It was like a really. It was like seventy percent of university students. Their method of managing their finances is to not look. Exactly, <laughs> that's mine. I just can't because the thing is, if I looked and there was a bunch of money in there, I'd be like, woohoo, and go and spend, spend it. Yeah. And vice versa, I'd get super stressed if there was a little bit of money. Where am I going with this? Anyway. I like thinking about alternatives to money. And the thing is, there are a bunch that we like use in our daily lives, like use points. Like air miles is an alternative currency. Okay. What else is an alternative currency? Like store credit when you return something 
or when you, we've been doing a lot of consignment things lately, just as we're kind of transitioning our wardrobes to be a bit more minimal. I'm speaking for myself. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, I'm like consigning some clothes so that I can like reinvest the money in the businesses and what have you. But like that's a type of currency. And around the world, there's a few. And my hope is that there'll be more in the future. Local currencies. Mm. What would you say local currency is? Well, I'll just say what you told me it is. Okay. Because <laughs> about a week or so ago, we were out for a walk and you were kind of weirdly quiet. You had been for a few <laughs> minutes. And I was like, what's up? What's it in you? And you said... I have an idea, and I was like, okay, say it. And you were like, it might be dumb. And I was like, okay. And you, <laughs> said, you just said, what if there were two monies? <laughs> and I kind of thought about it, and I was like, wow, that's a really cool idea. Yeah. But I haven't put much really critical thought into it in terms of this would work well, this would work badly. Mm-hmm. But your idea is basically we have a local currency mm-hmm. for, for us in Montreal. That would be our Montreal currency, Yeah. which is different from our big Canada-wide currency, mm-hmm. uh, the federal currency, which works when you're trying to buy something from a company on another coast. Yes. And this would encourage more local selling in some way. Exactly. So basically there is a thing that exists even with one currency and it's called the local multiplier effect. So it's like if you buy your coffee from a local cafe versus Starbucks, odds are, like most often, they'll source their dairy from a local farmer they will support local artists. They'll, you're literally paying the people who are then going to go buy their groceries. Yeah. They're usually a bit more local-minded. So you are boosting the local economy. Yeah, and it usually stays in the economy about four times longer than had you bought from a chain. And so that's the essence of what a local currency is. And what I'm getting at is what money looks like in a degrown society. And I really think it would just look like there being a local currency and a national or even global currency. Really? And the main thing is that, okay, all those things, but then there's still going to be people working at the farms and they're going to have to be paid money. Or like there's going to still be people being paid in money, but they would be half paid in local currency, half paid in like the national currency. (laughs) And it's like, then it encourages people to be a bit more inventive. Hey, I want to keep this money going in the economy. Hey, I need to spend this local currency, but there's nowhere to buy fresh bread. So someone says, oh, I'll become a local baker hmm. and then I can make all this local currency. That'd be cool. The products are nicer when they're local. And then they would start paying their cashier or whatever. And the cashier says, oh, there's nowhere to buy clothes locally. I'll start making clothes. And like it, encourages, it encourages invention and localization of things. Whereas right now, there's no incentive to shop locally besides the moral incentive, like there's no economic incentive for the most part. Yeah, and there's no economic, as you said, to to create local businesses. This is yeah. something we experience firsthand a lot. It's a big topic of discussion, I think probably in most rural areas, but in Nova Scotia especially, mm-hmm. almost every young person leaves the province Yes, because they're like, why would I stay here yeah. if, if I want to become a baker? Mm-hmm. Especially, why would I want to stay in my small town? Yeah. There's no incentive. Mm-hmm. So local currencies are an incentive, and they exist in some places. The main one that, as English-speaking people that we would know about, is in Brixton. You know where Brixton is? UK? Yeah. It's where David Bowie's from. Okay. Um, And they're called, colloquially, affectionately, Bowie Bucks. But they're just called the Brixton (laughs) Pound, because they made a really good point. I watched a TED Talk about it, and... On the money is like David Bowie and like a bunch of other local celebrities. 
Right. Because the reason they said behind that was we need to remind people that the money isn't the monarchs, the money isn't these dead people who founded the nation or whatever. The money, the is, money the is ours. Know. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's the, much more democratic. Yeah. And I think that's like a really interesting point of even like the aesthetics of money. It's just like I was thinking I was gonna talk about that, yeah. Yeah. It's just like it doesn't feel like it's your own ever. And also there's something called the willingness to pay. Did you look into that at all? No. Basically, I found it, especially now that you can have your credit or debit card on your phone, like increasingly your willingness to pay, the more like quick it is, is much higher. I find I spend much more money now that my debit card is on my phone because you literally don't even have to type in your PIN mm. or like get your credit out of your wallet. You just have to tap your phone, hold your thumb on the thing. Yeah, or online shopping. Yeah. But then if you had to actually take out your $5 bills and count them out, your willingness to pay goes down. And it's the same with a local currency because you know where it came from a bit more. It's like you know the value of this money. Like it's giving value to money. Right now we don't know the value of money. It's like you know that there's a dollar, but it's like what is a dollar? But you know what one Bowie buck is. And because you can see it in your community, you can see mm. your community growing and see it. I like it. It's, really ta- it's a tactile version of money like it's what money basically should be yeah it should be a more community you should see it and think this is going in the hands of my neighbor like that yeah and right now it's like when you pay with your money no matter where you're for the most part no matter what you buy you have no control over where it goes it's like it could be invested in offshore drilling for all you know (laughs) when you buy from a certain company yeah but when you're buying from like your neighbor you know where the money is going into his new lawnmower yeah, but even if you know that, it's like a little bit less, like you still care. What do you think about like digital money versus cash, legal tender? Mm-hmm. I find money cumbersome and like kind of gross. Yeah, I don't like cash either. But also, I know I'd save a lot more if I started paying in cash. I went to a cafe the other day. I should talk about this place another time because it's really just a cool space. But I went in and I was like, okay, hey, I'll have my cappuccino. And he was like, cash only. And I was just like, what? It's 2021. But then I thought about it, and this place is like the essence of degrowth. There were there was a big gaggle of men out front talking about football or soccer. Um, like of old men, you know, wearing like newsboy caps and like all kind of scattered, drinking their cappuccinos. And I was like, it's good that they only take cash because you have to, you know you're going there. You have to get cash. You have to... That's true. That, you're always talking about intentionality. There is an intentionality to cash. Yes. I don't like that word, though. We need to come up with something else. It always bothered me that there is no more technical term than cash. Yeah. I know, like, tender. But that's but, not a nice uh, word either. I don't like that either. But, yeah, it should be designed cool. Yeah. How do you think it should be designed? Um, also, how is every place going to print this by themselves? Literally with printers, perhaps? <laughs> or I don't see any issues with that. There's a lot of places. <laughs> There's, I know in like, uh, this is probably going to be a bit ignorant because I didn't take notes on it. But in like a Mayan civilization, there was this specific type of, it's not limestone, but it's like limestone. And it only was found in a certain part of the nation. So it's like, it was completely, you couldn't forge it. Like it was literally a specific type of stone. Okay. It was also super heavy. It's so like, People would just, like, not carry it around. It was like, you know that person has stone, so you'd give them stuff. Like, it was... Yeah, it was bartering. Yeah, bartering. Basically, maybe some kind of stone. Maybe we use gravel. 
but yeah. it's engraved with like little. Oh, it has to be it has to have the official stamp. Yeah. The Bowie stamp. Bowie stamp. Um, I don't know for sure. That's an interesting idea. I feel like I'm too talked out to really, <laughs> to really pick it apart. I feel like there's some, there must be some obvious flaws with it that I'm not realizing. Mm-hmm. We still need to trade. Yes, of course. That's what the big economies or the big currencies for. Yeah, there could still be accumulation of wealth. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think, but. But I think just what I was thinking, my biggest flaw that I saw in the system was accumulation of wealth because I think there is always going to be. It's always going to pull to extremes of inequality, but just having with our little local governments, which are now much more powerful, saying, okay, there can be disparities in wealth, but it's like the lowest person gets $1 now, the highest person gets $10 an hour. That's the farthest gap. If anyone start, tries okay. to like make $11 an hour, it gets taxed. There's also this nice idea of if the municipal governments, the small ones, have more power, the local tax your money is actually going into your school's mm-hmm. lunch program yeah, or your new roads, mm-hmm. which I think people would be way happier to do. Yeah. <laughs> which sounds, um, it sounds like I have such a cynical, selfish view of, of humans. Yeah. But I do think that people would be much higher, much more happy to pay the same amount or even a little bit more tax if it was for things they themselves mm-hmm. were seeing locally, if they're not even using it. Even if they don't have kids, they'd be happy to improve their local school, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to toss out some other economic words that I think we can discuss briefly. It's like the flash round, the yeah. lightning round in the degrowth world. Yeah. Circular economy. Oh, I don't think it's something you can just throw out, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> Circular economy is basically when you, okay, I bought my knives, but then at the end of their lives when they're super dull, the blade's basically gone, the person who sold you the knives takes back the handles and reuses them or recycles it's them. It's reducing or waste. Whatever. Yeah. A lot of clothing com- or a few clothing companies have this now. Yeah, reducing waste but also extending lifespan. Yeah. So offering free services to maintain them or even paid services. Right now we don't have an option. It's like if you need something fixed, like how do you fix it? You think this is a degrowth idea? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of circularity, I mean, there's this obvious example of you send your vest back to Patagonia after you're finished with it. Mm-hmm. But also, in the degrowth world, hopefully people are more self-sufficient. We know more about sewing. Yeah. Circularity comes just from the consumer mm-hmm. saying, I'm going to give this another life, life just by myself. Yeah. Carbon tax. I don't know if I like the carbon tax because it contributes positively to GDP, I'm pretty sure. Which I think GDP we need to just forget about. So if you know what GDP is, forget what it means. Just like forget it exists. But I think there's just an alternative... Because, like, with a carbon tax, you can basically not have to pay it by planting a forest. But, like, that doesn't actually stop the amount of CO2 being pumped into the atmosphere. Like, there's still, like, we need to stop pumping CO2 in the atmosphere. regulations is just a better idea. Yeah. And also, they just say, okay, we'll just eat the cost. Yeah. And and often it won't be enforced. Yeah, and then, like, everyone who pollutes is going to eat the cost. Therefore, the price is going to remain relatively the same. And a carbon tax needs to be constantly monitored, right? Yeah. It needs to be constantly regulated like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Reciprocal gift economies. Yes. Can you hear my snaps on the podcast? I think they can. Okay, gift economies. I wrote about this, I think, a little bit in the zine, but beautiful. <laughs> like, in Writing Sweetgrass, the first chapter is about the gift of strawberries, and it's just like, it made me cry, and I reread it sometimes because it's just so tender and sweet because it's like, 
we are so used to having to pay for things. And it comes a little bit when you shop locally. Oh, I forgot my money. And the cafe owner says, well, I know you're going to be back. Or even if you're not back, like, I don't care because I know that you come here often. You've supported me. I'll give you your coffee for free. It's just like we never get anything for free. And when we do get gifts as North Americans, you feel in debt. It's like if, I, if a friend who got me a Christmas gift and I didn't get them one, I'd feel in debt. And then I'd get them like two birthday gifts or something. But like a gift economy is not feeling in debt when someone gives you a gift. Because it's a gift. Like the essence of it is you're a human. So my abundance I'm going to share with you sort of thing. Kiki's yeah. Delivery Service is a really good movie outlining the gift economy, I think. Mm -hmm. I, but I do think it's a crucial part to degrowth. But could that just replace, is that just a less radical version maybe of the local economy is what I'm wondering? That would be basically a commune, I think, of just like we're all sharing everything, which I think will work in some places. It won't work everywhere, as will nothing we talk about. Like, everything's going to be localized. Okay. Um, <laughs> furnishing our apartment. That was the last point I just wanted to mention. Because <laughs> oh, I felt like this. we've had some good illustrations of the economics of today, try, struggling to try and live a degrowth economics in a globalized, commoditized, corporate world. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, I was just, the, the example of shopping at, say, Ikea versus secondhand on the, what's it called, like the informal marketplace mm -hmm. versus direct from, say, artisanal or real wood Mm -hmm. manufacturers or artisans. Well, we've done a Those are kind of like the three, of the three buckets for me. Yeah, so we've got some IKEA stuff. Yes. That was mainly due to the fact that how are we supposed to transport a bed <laughs> if we can't get delivery? And the thing is, there's this thing called BUNS, which is, uh, I think it's international, but like it's these local communities of trading, and they usually have a Facebook group, and there's also a website you basically say, I'm looking for this, I have this to give, or I have this to give, I'm looking for this. Yeah. And it's a huge community. So I posted on there and I was like, I really need someone to help me move a bed because we found one secondhand. Yes. No one helped. So at all of the Montreal Bunzers, where were you? <laughs> <laughs> we're, often, we're often really critical of social media and the internet in general, but I actually think the secondhand market online is a, just, just a great thing. Mm -hmm. like there's, nothing bad, there's nothing really bad about it. Mm -hmm. It's just an improvement over how... Secondhand markets used to work. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that gripe. Yeah, it was a weird gripe. Sorry. Oh, it's like the only barrier, because like the secondhand market is so accessible and affordable, I find, much mm. more affordable than buying firsthand, yeah. is the delivery. But other, like if we had a bit more of like a shared car system, or like it just would take like a tiny, like a touch more, and I think it would be perfect. Or if buses had all storage areas. Yeah, like something like that. that. you could pay for maybe a little bit extra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just something like that. But like really it's almost flawless and almost the most accessible way to furnish one's apartment. And then the artisanal option is just kind of expensive because of the way things are right now. Yeah. Like no one's going to, like sourcing wood even is super expensive. Yeah, of course. Unless you're Ikea, which I don't know where they get their wood from. Somewhere. Yeah, I think it's, like 80% dust. Probably. As the chair that I sit on creaks beneath me. Yeah. Just a couple other like options, because I only talked about local um, currencies for the most part. One is scripts, which were used during the Great Depression, which is money which depreciates. And I know money depreciates with like inflation, 
But it literally, like, if you don't spend this money within a year, like, it'll have zero value. Ooh, no hoarding. No hoarding. Like the dragons of yeah. old. So that's the point of it. And it was, like, used as a local currency for the most part. Like, there were ones in Massachusetts, ones, like, in all over um, America and Europe. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah. Because it forces you to reinvest, mm-hmm. and it also reduces inheritance. I don't yeah. know exactly how it would work, but something like, wow, something like that is kind of cool. Yeah, so I think that's an interesting idea to mull over in your brains. Yeah. Yeah, so like it would also encourage long-term investments, perhaps. And the other option that I wanted to talk about very quick is just a case study in the Netherlands. It's called Helpen, or if you just type it in, it's called Helpen. Okay. Like helping, but drop the G. The website is only in Dutch. Dutch. So, sorry. But... <laughs> I was, there's a TED talk about it in English, and basically you get credits for community service, and it's a national currency. Mm. So it's like you get a V helping dollar for helping out your neighbor who is a senior, or for picking up garbage. Yeah. Pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. So that was another option, and it's those are both kind of community currency things, but. These things can all be localized. They can all coexist. Yeah. There can be some of this here, some of that there. A little sprinkle exactly. of the V helping. Yeah. A little sprinkle of the limestone economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, money. Pretty cool. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. If you want to reach us mm-hmm. with any hate messages <laughs> or love messages or anything, yes. you can email us. Those addresses are in the description. You can also find us on TikTok at Solacene, or you can buy our zine which works as an accompaniment to this series on degrowth or just as a standalone introduction to the topic. It's handmade. Mm-hmm. It's a really nice paper. It's bound with string that Alicia sews lovingly until her hands are bleeding. I can't feel my fingertips. Um, yeah. That's at <laughs> www.sewacene.org. Bye. Yeah.